Hi folks, this is Ian from the Editing Suite. Despite having done this for almost two years, I managed to record to the wrong microphone in this episode, but I still think it's pretty listenable and we hope you still enjoy the show. here at the moment and i'm sure my well my now co-host i guess the internship has kind of ended by now is i'm sure he's somewhere come come with me folks i'm uh, i'm sure we'll find him ian ian i think i hear something down in the basement uh let's head down there and see what's going on Set him on fire! Ice. Set him on fire! That's not allowed. You can't. You can't set things on fire. That's, that's not allowed. Uh, what, what's what's going on here, Ian? Oh, hi, Ian. Oh, uh, this might look like an illegal robot fighting arena, but a robot fighting arena? Awesome! <laughs> Amazing! Good initiative. I like it. Who's this guy? This is James. James. Hi, here's Ian. Hi, James. Ian, hi. Hi, nice to meet you. James Hewitt, isn't it? Yeah, Needy Cat Games, is that right? That's the one, yeah. Does everyone that, like, works here, are you all called Ian? Is that, like, a standard thing? It's kind of company policy now, really. He made so, me yeah. change my name. Okay. So am I going to need to be called Ian as well? Because I was kind of hoping to, like, move in a little bit down here. I've got this whole arena thing go going on. I mean, I'm not sure if I could really let you do that. Uh, you'd really need to pay rent in some way or form. Maybe you could come and help us out on the cast, perhaps? Like, maybe pay your way that way? Like indentured labour? Yeah, fine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, perfect. I don't know if i call it that exactly, but I would. yes. <laughs> Quick Pro Pro, you know, that kind of thing, you know. Well, why don't you come upstairs, come up into the studio, get some headphones on you, and we'll see how you go, and I'll figure out what that's worth at the end. How's that sound? I immediately trust you completely. Excellent. No one's ever said that to me before. <laughs> uh, just, uh, yeah, welcome to the studio, James. Sit down, get your headphones on. Ian, yeah. get yourself sorted out. So uh, what, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, James? Sort of your, I, I know you've got a, quite a bit of a history in the British games industry. What, what, what What's your background? Yeah, so I'm James. I, I make the games. My name is... It rhymes with my job. Uh, it's one of the few things Excellent. that's... Uh, you know, um, yeah, totally. I've been working in game design professionally for about five, six years now. Uh, I used to work for Games Workshop as a game designer based in Nottingham, doing all sorts of stuff with them. And then about two and a half years ago, I split off from there to set up Needy Cat Games with my partner Sophie and our cats. And yeah, they have yet to pull their weight at all. But, you know, we're doing what we can. The cats aren't really helping out with the design at all, are they? I mean, they're really good at testing out box lid prototypes. You know, they'll, they'll sit <laughs> in a box lid, yep. make sure it works. Make sure it's comfy. Yeah. I mean, Fair enough. cats across the world are going to be doing that, so they need to make sure it, it's fit for purpose. So oh, what absolutely. games did you work on at Games Workshop? What were you involved with? What was I involved with? So when I first started, I was working on like the core games. So Warhammer 40,000, Warhammer, the last bits of Warhammer before the... Uh, 
world went kaboom i did a few of those so i was then involved in some of the initial work on age of sigma and did a couple of the books that came out for that a couple of the battle tomes uh, then i kind of found my niche and started making their box games so i did horus heresy betrayal at kalth which was like a tactical squad level uh, hex based uh, shooty game uh, i did gore chosen which was a swing around hammers on chains hitty game and uh, oh and uh, warhammer quest silver tower which was a kind of creep through a dungeon stab monsters and find out secrets kind of game uh, then i ended up going downstairs to the specialist game studio i was kind of part of the founding uh, team of that it was a, a new team bringing back old games and i worked on blood bowl necromunda and adeptus titanicus uh, and oh, then cool. i left so yeah so quite a few like big names so no pressure i I didn't feel any pressure at all i lost no sleep uh i used to have hair (laughs) (laughs) so that's quite an illustrious history at games workshop uh what made you want to split off and establish your own publishing house Uh, it's a number of things really i I like to give a different answer whenever i'm asked this i I, I think it gives me an air of mystique like the joker Um, (laughs) yeah basically i uh I'd, i'd gone into games workshop knowing that much as i love gw games like my my true passions were much uh, wider ranging i, I i'm a, a gamer in all sorts i love board games card games all sorts of things and i'd kind of gone in with the aim of you know learning the craft making some awesome connections learning a lot of stuff and then eventually one day moving on the process kind of got accelerated uh, for various reasons and just took a leap of faith really thought you know what i think the time is right uh, i'm not getting any younger uh, I've got a, a small child and a mortgage. Now's the best time to start a self-employed business <laughs> in the current yep. economy. You know, and yeah, that's it. So so did that and haven't really looked back. We're, uh, we're in our third location now in two years. I mean, the first one was the spare room, so it doesn't really count. But um, <laughs> yeah, we've kind of we've gone from a little tiny spare room to a little tiny office with no windows and now a slightly less tiny office with windows, which is, I mean, that's progress. <laughs> you've, you've done a little bit of work for Mantic as well, because I've played the Hellboy games. Yes, as well, absolutely. Really yeah, cool. I, I can't not mention Mantic. So before I was at Games Workshop, I was the community manager for Mantic Games. So I, I was over there in like a period of mad, massive growth when it went from like half a dozen staff to about twenty-five in the space of a year. Uh, it was when it was like the, in the the early frontier days of Kickstarter, when Kickstarter was a whole different beast to what it is now. Mantic had some early success there, and I was brought in as kind of uh, the first of a. Uh, well, among the first of a, a wave of new staff. Uh, and so then when I left Games Workshop and I was looking around for people to work with, I mean, Mantic are literally a 10-minute walk down the road from my house. So I popped in, said hello, and uh, they said, hey, do you want to do this Hellboy game? And I considered it for, oh nanoseconds before saying yeah. yes. And uh, <laughs> yep. yeah, the rest is history. We, it, it was a massive Kickstarter, Man- Mantic's biggest yet we worked on it for about about a year i think all told just just on stretch goals and expansions and stuff that was you know not planned in the first place but it was added because it got so big and uh, there's still stuff like in the pipeline now the stuff that was on on kickstarter that hasn't hit retail yet it's yeah it's done remarkably well it's got a hell of a following i'm I'm really really proud of it so what's the first game coming out of needy cat games the first game coming out of Needy Cat Games is Robot Fight Club, which is a game all about robots fighting in a club-style environment. Actually, um, where? And, yeah, so when? When? <laughs> when? Yep. When? Where? Uh, where? How? It's So it's hitting Kickstarter on the 10th of March, and we're hoping to get it on the shelves before Christmas this year. So it's um, 
it's a two-player game with a lot of customization and modularity. Anyone who's played games like Hellboy will know that we quite enjoy making games that are very replayable and modular. Uh, Robot Fight Club is definitely in the same sort of vein. The idea is that you're taking the role of a bunch of uh, kids in a sort of retro futuristic setting, uh, kind of, you know, the future as it was seen in the 50s and 60s. Lots of, like, shiny chrome and big ray guns and that sort of stuff. And uh, this bunch of kids have crept into an abandoned cybernautics academy where robots, you know, robotology was taught to awesome kids who loved robots. It's been shut down for several years. This bunch of uh, curious kids snuck in and they found a load of robots that were still in working order so they've they've put them back together and started Robot Fight Club and the idea is that you control a pair of robots which you uh, craft out of various components at the start of each game and you play to the best of three so it's 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 a, an arena combat game you've got like a, a grid you're moving around positioning is very important you've got directional damage all that sort of thing but it's a, a simultaneous selection uh, action card system so you are trying to outthink your opponent but the, cl- the, the the cunning part is you've got two robots each but you can only activate one of them each turn and there's an element of kind of double bluffing and guessing and all that kind of thing and I really like it, I think it's a fun game Well let's get on with the show then gents This is Brainwaves episode 44 bringing you the best in board game and tabletop gaming news. These are the headlines for week of March 2nd 2020 Kickstarter employees form a union. Drive through RPG gets romantic and wizards conjure up a rise in profits. All this and more on this episode of Brainwaves. We go live to Ian McAllister with the first headline. So we've reported on Kickstarter employees' efforts to form a union over various casts in the last year or so, and we are delighted to announce that the employees of Kickstarter have voted 4637 to form a union. Honestly, we didn't realise that Kickstarter had such a small staff. Uh, It marks the first time employees at a major tech company have unionized. Kickstarter CEO Aziz Hanzan said in a statement, We support and respect this decision and we are proud of the fair and democratic process that got us here. We have worked hard over the last decade to build a different kind of company, one that measures its success by how well it achieves its mission, helping to bring creative projects to life. Our mission has been common ground for everyone here during this process and will continue to guide us as we enter this new phase together. The news hasn't all been rosy. In the days leading up to the vote, it was confirmed that Kickstarter had hired Dwayne Morris, a Philadelphia law firm which specialises in labour relations and maintaining a union-free workplace. Kickstarter has responded to uh, this information, saying that they retained the services of the firm in 2018 before the new union was going to be formed and denied any union-busting activities. Great news for Kickstarter. Do you think this is going to have an effect on sort of board game companies using Kickstarter down the line and and do we know of any board game companies that have unions at all? The thing is it's it's an industry that is susceptible to a lot of things like crunch and high staff turnover and all the things that you're seeing a lot of talk about in the media around video game companies in the last couple of years and I, I think there's definitely potentially a place for companies in you know this industry to tighten up their their labor laws and that sort of stuff i also think that maybe the industry's a bit too small maybe a little bit too fragile at the moment to actually sustain it unfortunately i mean a lot of companies operate on such tight margins and i'm, I'm talking the small players i mean the, the, the bigger players absolutely you know i think there should definitely be some some uni- unions in there but yeah the the smaller companies i think 
it's like a lot of things. I keep saying that um, small companies would do really well to get more business advice, get you know more HR departments in, that sort of thing. But so many of them just can't afford it. And yeah, I don't know. That's probably a bad thing. So I think good for Kickstarter for doing this. Obviously, they're, they're not a tabletop industry company, though, are they? They're, I think it's very easy to think of them as a tabletop company, but they're not. They are they are wide ranging. Kickstarter is huge. Basically, they are they are a tech company effectively yeah. that's, that's their remit and it, yeah it'll be really interesting to see if other tech companies follow suit obviously like kickstarter has very few employees by the looks of the vote how the vote went so getting someone like amazon to unionize or apple or one of the huge tech companies tesla yeah. is going to be a much much bigger effort but i think we'll see more of this over the next few years as, as they take this as a sort of flag to sort of move forward and actually try and unionize more and it'll be yeah it'll be interesting to see how that plays out anyway from uh unions of one kind to unions of another james i think drive to rpg has been launching some new categories that was a fantastic segue um <laughs> i love so it i've got i've gotten good at this over the last year and a half so <laughs> <laughs> i can tell um, so yeah, for anyone that doesn't know about Drive-Thru RPG, it's the primary source of RPG PDFs online, and it's the home of the DMs Guild for Dungeons & Dragons, uh, the Free League Workshop, which I believe uh, you guys have covered recently on the cast. Yeah, last cast we were talking about the launch of the Free League Workshop. Yeah, that's it. Um, and it's yeah, it's a fantastic place for all your sort of online uh, RPG PDF needs. I've used it myself quite a bit. Recently, they've added two categories to help customers find the games they want. That's uh, an LGBTQ plus category and a romance category. Uh, Romance includes games like Monster Hearts, uh, Starcrossed, Monster Hearts 2 is currently the best seller in the category. No surprises there, it's a pretty big uh, player in that game. LGBTQ plus top seller is currently Blue Rose RPG, which actually I haven't heard of. Yeah, This is a game of romantic fantasy by Green Ronin, who, I mean, they've got a good pedigree, they've been around for quite a while. And there's a book of stories set in that world as well. Uh, they've asked uh, Drive Through RPG, sorry, have asked specifically that publishers only use these tags if they're actually appropriate. I think it's good that they've they've led with that. Um, yeah, it's it's a great way for the platform to kind of show off this sort of content because there really is like a a growing groundswell of these kinds of role playing games. You know, RPGs have changed a lot in the in the past ten years. Uh, the standard Definitely, is no yeah. longer hack and slash, kill monsters in a dungeon. You're seeing so much more in the way of story games and so much more representation. Mm. So many more games made by people of color. P, um, LGBTQ plus uh, people. You've got a, a lot of people who previously were underrepresented finding a voice in role playing games. And I think it's a fantastic idea that DTRPG are doing this. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to see them showing off that content and allowing people to find that content easily and find each other easily. So foster the community and actually grow it. So it's it's really good to see them sort of expanding and changing with the times and not being resistant to that kind of thing, which could easily have happened. So yeah really really supportive i'm glad to see that kind of stuff coming out i've never played monster hearts i've heard it's fantastic i played apocalypse world back in the day um it's based on that system yeah and starcross kind sounds kind of interesting ian i believe you've got some financial news so this is the news that Hasbro have recently released their finance report in an earnings conference call on tuesday the 11th of february Hasbro ceo brian goldner announced that Magic the Gathering revenues were up by 30%. This is a double-digit growth in tabletop play. These sales growths contributed to an increase in revenue of $1.53 billion, up from $1.4 billion last year. Monopoly has also had double-digit growth. D&D sales continued to be driven by video, and 150 million hours were viewed in 2019, which is up 50% from the previous year. 
There have been some tariff-related impacts on sales, though Hasbro ended up 3% up on $4.72 billion from $4.58 billion in 2018. Earnings more than doubled from $220.4 million to $520.5 million. <laughs> I mean, that is some insane figures in there. I mean, 150 million hours of D&D viewed in 2019 is sort of mind-blowing. Yeah, that these is- are numbers that you... They're just so far beyond grasping in your head that they just go, they go straight out the window. Hey, I, I think you'll find if you look at the Needy Cat Games financial report for last year, I think we did roughly similar numbers. I'll have you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, wait. Is that is that a dream you just recently had? <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I've I've seen a couple of uh, sort of financial analysis reports basically saying like. You know what? If you're investing, you might want to invest in board game companies in the next few years because the growth has been quite, quite. It huge. really is. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've, I've actually I've, I've been contacted by several of these investment research companies. Oh wow! Where they okay. kind Goodness. of you know they reach out to people who are who you know have a name in an industry and they'll they'll, they'll want to get your knowledge on yeah. various things. And I've had three or four different <coughs> companies reach out none of them have actually gone anywhere but the the fact that they're looking is interesting yeah um, absolutely well that's enough of the headlines i think let's uh, move on to some news first off some sad news daniel scott palter of final sword games has passed away he was a pioneer in the rpg industry and he founded west end games in 1974 West End Games is best known as the publisher of the Star Wars D6 role-playing game from 1987, which did much to expand the Star Wars universe and keep it relevant to geek culture in between Return of the Jedi and Phantom Menace. Final Sword Productions was founded by Palter in 2001, and the current production schedule is still on course. Our sympathies to Daniel's family and friends, and yeah, it sounds like he had a massive influence on the RPG hobby in the early days. Asmodee, who own Fantasy Flight Games amongst various other companies, have announced a new replacement parts policy and it's causing a bit of consternation around the net. Uh, Their current policy goes along these lines. The question they put on their pack is, I bought my game at a local game or toy store. What do I do if it is missing a component or is damaged? And Asmodee's reply to this is, return to the store where you originally purchased the game with proof of purchase and they will be able to request a replacement copy of the game from Asmodee USA or their distributor. When they receive it, you'll be able to exchange your defective copy for a new one, subject to availability and store policy. For issues unrelated to missing or damaged components, your store's regular return exchange policies will apply. There's been quite a lot of anger amongst the community about this new policy, because previously you've basically been contacting individual companies within the Asmodee group for their own replacement parts, so contacting them about missing cards, faulty meeples, faulty boards, all that kind of stuff, and getting individual parts sent out. And I can only imagine how expensive that has been for those individual companies to maintain. I've been in retail for too long. <laughs> far, far too long. But basically, I've, I've worked for HMV and I've worked for smaller companies as well. And pretty much when dealing with any distributors with faulty parts, this is basically how things go. You return whole things. You don't return parts or ask for components. They just return whole items. There's been a bit of speculation that the move represents a streamlining effort by Eurazo, who basically own Asmodee. They're a private equity firm in preparation for sale of Asmodee, and we'll get onto a little bit more about that later. And there's been quite a bit of anger on Reddit and various other forums I've seen on There Will Be Games as well, which I contribute to. There's been quite a bit of anger about this. 
I mean, the, I think it's a fine policy as long as the supply of games is good. Yeah. And the supply that's of games is key. not great. So that's a yeah. problem, I think. What, what, what do you think, James, as someone who's about to like release their own game? Have you got sort of thoughts in mind about how to do this kind of thing yourself? Yeah, so it's it's a weird one for me because I obviously am in the in a position where I'm uh, you know designing and publishing games now myself, but I worked as a retail store manager for about twelve years for Games Workshop, so I've I've kind of seen both sides of the coin. You know, when with them, obviously, we had the benefit of you know we were run by the larger company so if someone came in needed replacements we could just pop open a box give them the parts and then order a replacement for our shelves smaller independent stockists though i mean that's i can't imagine how frustrating it must be to be a retailer with lots of people coming in you know asking for replacement parts expecting you to replace them there and then as i understand it the the policy that asmodee has updated to in the u.s has actually been in place in the UK for a while now. I'm not sure if that, that's necessarily true. That's what I was told recently, but it has. I'd imagine so, because that kind of fits with what my, I know of retail in the UK. Certainly. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing is as well. The, the other side of the coin is they've taken on so many smaller companies over the past few years, and the logistics of trying to organise, you know, that many companies being able to go to. Z-Man or Plaid Hat or one of the other companies and order your pieces, meaning they were all maintaining their own separate supply chains. That must have been a headache. Yeah, so it's got to be an see... absolute nightmare. Yeah, so I can and see... It's not, and it's not even like there's regular parts there, is there? No, no, exactly. Every game has its own individual bits. And... Yeah. yeah, everything's bespoke. It's not like you can just... you know. If, if, I mean, if, if we were 10 years ago and most games, games used wooden cubes, meeples, or, you know occasional things that were separate that was one thing but now you know every game is unique um so so yeah i i, I can sort of see it from both sides on, on, the, on the one hand i think uh it's, it's it's a real common sense move and i can see why they would do it without having there needing to be some kind of larger reason on the other hand i can see why people are thinking oh does this mean they're selling indeed and talking about uh news from the asmodee group i think uh you've got some news from fantasy Flight games james Yes, indeed. So, Fantasy Flight Games are ending RPG production. Uh, this was first reported on the website D20 Radio. It looks like they're shuttering their RPG studio completely. According to what's been said, any books currently in production will be completed, but this is yet again fueling the fire that Asmodea may be looking, you know, either, either Fantasy Flight or Asmodea itself is looking to be sold. So, yeah, more, more speculation. There's been a lot of talk at the start of the year about sort of consolidation in the industry yeah. and companies downsizing a little bit and just streamlining things and only putting out products that they know are going to sell maybe be evergreens and i think yeah. this is just part of that because let's face it when you've got x-wing miniatures game on your stable the entire rpg wing has got to be like a tiny percentage of those sales yeah i would love to know like if you compared the whole edge of the empire or you know the, the, the whole star wars roleplay range I'd love to, to compare the, the sales figures for that versus just the X-Wing first edition core box. Yeah. And I pretty yeah. much can guarantee that the X-Wing core box is going to win. Yeah. I mean, much as I love RPGs myself, they've always yeah. been a, a, quite a small kind of take in yeah. comparison to like bigger companies and bigger products. It's just the, That's just the case of the industry. I think RPGs really suit smaller companies, you know, the companies that can afford to put out 
books that they really want to put out. You know, they're not. Yeah. I mean, like you know, you, you can look at D and D. D and D has constant churn. You know, there is always more stuff coming out, more accessories, more interesting stuff, more supplements, just supplements upon supplements. And they do that because they are completely focused on that thing. That is their their bread and butter. And that's what they do. But for a company like Fantasy Flight to have you know a small subsidiary wing putting out roleplay games every now and then, don't get me wrong, they're fantastic. I've I've, I've played a, a few of them and I really enjoy them. But like you say, when you look at it in the context of a larger business, it just doesn't make as much financial sense to keep keep it going, does it? Yeah, if you just look at raw numbers, which is that's got to be what it comes down to in the end. And we have to remember that these are companies. They're not in it for, I mean, okay, they're in it for the love of it a bit because they're making board games and card games and that, and that kind of thing. But yeah. in the end, they've got to pay their employees and keep the lights on. And RPGs probably just aren't quite doing it for them. Yeah. What's the shame is sometimes these RPG tie-in products that are in the same universe can be used as kind of supplementary books. Like I know there's a Netrunner RPG which I've been wanting to play for ages, um, and that crossover can bring new customers. So it, from my point of view, the the bottom line on how much these books are actually producing is perhaps less than they're actually bringing to the company as a whole if they're getting that crossover audience in. Anyway, uh, Ian, why don't you uh, take us through to the brainstorm? I think we've got a little subject to talk about. As someone who spends a lot of time on Twitter and Instagram and all those kind of things, this is something I'm extremely interested in. So this week we're going to be talking about the guidelines that came out from the Federal Trade Commission who are following Canadian authorities in cracking down on influencers declaring their relationships with the brands they promote. As the board game media gets bigger, as companies look to promote their products in an increasingly crowded marketplace, are we losing sight of the need for good criticism that is divorced from the marketing apparatus? Are we being cavalier about the free copies, press reviews, etc. that are thrown around as incentives? So this is very much something that comes up quite a lot, is the, the relationship between reviewers and influencers and those kind of people with both their audience and the publishers and the, the line that they have to walk and how they're walking it. Are they getting cash or are they, and are they declaring that up front? From my point of view as a, as a writer and as a, as a critic, from the very outset, I've been kind of conscious of the fact that, yeah, people sometimes give me games to review and I try to be as honest as possible about where everything comes from. So if something's been given to me for free, I tell, I tell people like that right at the top of each article. If I bought it with my own money, I say that as well. Yep. And I, with my earlier stuff, I wasn't doing that as much. And then as I got sort of more and as I sort of pivoted the giant brain away from design into journalism, I started to do that a lot more. I was conscious of the ethics problem. And I think we're seeing a lot more of that problem sort of surface over the last year or so. And especially as, as just as the hobby matures, as writers mature, as we actually start to see a sort of critical infrastructure coming together, it is an interesting thing to start con- consider. Some of the stuff you've come across here in, in your research for this article has been great. Like, so we're covered by the CAP code. That's uh, right. So it's, yeah. so it's a non-broadcast advertising and direct and promotional advertising, which includes things like paid editorial content and media that promotes a product and must be clearly identifiable by the consumer. Breaking this is breaking the law. 
Other practices that may break the law include falsely claiming to be a consumer, so saying like, I bought this when actually you were given it, and you're just sort of extolling its virtues because of that. Giving the impression that you're acting outside of their of business purposes. So like, if I was to say, oh, this game's fantastic, and not declare that I'd been given it for free effectively, and like I was somehow, if James gives me a copy of Robot Fight Club, and I don't declare anything and just say it's fantastic, and James is bugging me money in the back alleys or something, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, failing to identify commercial intent behind a social media post, omitting or hiding material information. I mean, I think this stuff is fairly straightforward to anyone who has who thinks about this stuff and has ethical concerns. But I can see people manipulating it, see people using it. I assume you've reached out to reviewers and that kind of thing, James, for a Robot Fight Club. How have you, how have you gone about that? It's a really inter- interesting one, and it's one that we've thought about quite a lot recently because you know we're at the point where we're about to launch Kickstarter. We want to make sure people know about Robot Fight Club. We want to get the game out there, but we're not interested in controlling the message on it. Uh, I've worked for companies that are very strict in what they allow reviewers or previewers to say about their games and that kind of chills me to the core i've got no interest in that at all so what we have always done is said that we will either pay people to do previews of games for us or we will you know give them free copies give them copies of the game whatever but we ask them to be very open about that and just you know basically from our point of view it's a way to get our game in front of different people whether or not the reviewer likes it and you know that's that's kind of okay by me i mean I, I i know that a lot of the board game reviewers that i follow i will watch their channels to see games not necessarily not not, not necessarily to see what they think of them because i might not always agree with their opinions but just to watch the yeah. game being showcased by different people and so as a, a publisher of games as we are now becoming we would rather just put things out there send out copies to reviewers asking them nicely if they would you know give some time to do this and if they if they ask for payment we will happily pay them but it is it's a it's a weird negotiation especially like you know i'm someone who's been around on like board games twitter for a long time and approaching people who i will happily chat away with and then having to go are you interested in reviewing a game uh do you want money for it it's it's a weird conversation to have i can imagine that must be quite awkward yeah this thing that crops up every now and again about sort of paid reviews and so, like to me, anything that's paid is definitely marketing. Like yeah. that's yeah. that's basically there's just basically a call. But and that's totally fine. I'm okay if you want to be a board game marketer. Cool, that's yeah. fine. If you want to be a board game advertising, that's great. If you're claiming to be like a critic and a reviewer and also yes. taking money, that's where problems start to arise yeah. for me personally because yeah. that's very very murky territory very Absolutely. very quickly. I I heard recently about um, a one of the larger board game review sites who only accept content now they they only put out content if they're being paid for it and wow. that made me quite unhappy and uh, and I yeah. was like well, we're not having anything to do with them then because yeah. that's you know I mean from a business point of view as soon as people realize that it's going to devalue anything you put on there anyway but from a personal point of view Definitely, it's so yeah. disingenuous you know yeah i mean i have i have great respect for the people who like contact me and want me to like review games yeah but i'm always honest about my opinions even if i don't like something i I think it's worthwhile to build an audience about what i don't like and what i do like because then they can agree or disagree with me and that's totally fine and yeah yeah the sort of the paid side of things is really really murky and i really don't like it and i think i think especially like 
I mean, I don't want to be overly critical, but especially sort of the American side of reviewing mm, yeah. really feels quite cliquey and weird, and it's not, we don't talk about the sort of ethics of it enough. Yeah, I suspect a lot of that is because of what we're looking at here, whereas the UK yeah, has maybe, yeah, clear rules from 2008, which show That's true. Yeah. something's either an advert or it's sponsored or it's an editorial, in which case it's not paid for. Mm. Um, yeah. Or whereas the the US looks like they're only recently bringing in these kind of separate advertising codes and making people say that these things are adverts or sponsored or that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's been a huge problem. Have you have either of you seen the Fire Festival documentary? Oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that that was what immediately came to my mind when I when I saw yep. it, I saw this in the in the news doc and wanted to turn it into brainstorm. If you haven't seen it, folks, that is a fantastic documentary about influencers advertising a thing that basically didn't exist and the gigantically crazy fallout from the whole thing. It's a fantastic <laughs> documentary. I really, That's really recommend incredible. it. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible thing. I think one of the things as well on, on this topic that is is difficult for me sometimes to come to terms with is because this is a little industry, you know, board games. Even though you know we look back at Hasbro with their however many billion dollar uh, you know financials, the majority of the industry is teeny tiny, and we don't have say the infrastructure that you know video games do for reviewers, where there are plenty of places where a reviewer can get a full time wage, work in an office, have all the benefits. So I'm always aware that every reviewer out there in board games, with you know very few exceptions is doing it on their own time they're either part-time self-employed you know something and so when i if i'm putting a game out so you know at the moment we're, we're not really putting robot fight club out for review we're putting it out for as a marketing push but when it comes to the time when you know if, if we want the game to be uh reviewed by people it raises interesting questions in my head you know do, how are they getting paid are they do we owe them for them covering our game whether they give it a good or a bad review because they're spending time working on a thing which might lead to more sales for us do we have an obligation morally to make sure they get part of that money and it's it's a minefield i i, I don't quite yeah, know what the right answer it's, is it's really yeah. tricky i mean in the in the last year the giant brain has included an amazon affiliate links yeah. in some posts and it took me a long time to decide to do that yeah and I did, I've done it in such a way where I'm extremely clear what posts include Amazon affiliate links. Like I say at the top, yeah. this post contains Amazon affiliate links. Every link has a little uh, bracket AL after it. Yep. So you know you're clicking on an Amazon affiliate link right from the start. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's got us a little bit of money, like not very much. I think we've made literal tens of pounds from, from those <laughs> affiliate links <laughs> over, the last, over the last few months. I'm, I'm rich, yeah. I tell you. Yeah. If that's enough to corrupt you, then I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah well you know uh and it's yeah it is an ex it's an extremely interesting squared circle yeah 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 i i don't know what the answer is either because we're getting better at it because there are now like we've got tabletop gaming magazine we've got things like senate yeah. they've got magazines Absolutely. out there that are they're paying their writers well yeah for the content they put out and that's great and i think that will get better over time but i think we're in a sort of slightly sort of vague weird sort of area at the moment where we don't quite have the professional criticism infrastructure in yeah. place yet, but it's getting better. I think the key point about lots of people doing this as a hobby is people don't have the knowledge to 
nobody's been to well a lot of people haven't been to journalism school that kind of thing so they don't necessarily know up front how they're supposed to declare these things one thing i found today when i was doing the research that i was really interested in is actually that if you pay someone to make content even if it's a review whatever then in the uk it counts as sponsored and so the commercial relationship has to be disclosed up front but i just thought that that distinction that this is no longer an editorial this is now sponsored content was really interesting actually yeah yeah, there's some great stuff to come up with. I think I might actually turn some of this stuff into an article at some point because yeah. I think it's I think it's worth highlighting and worth talking about. It's worth starting that conversation. Anyway, I think we've chatted about this for long <laughs> enough. We'll definitely put some links to this stuff in the show notes. And I yeah, think there's an article brewing in my head about this. We'll try and put some of this information up on the website soon because it's really interesting stuff. Uh, let's uh, wrap this thing up and get out of here. But of course, finally, we have some Monopoly news. We always have hey. Monopoly news, and for some reason, right. it has fallen to me now. Now that Jamie has gone to read the Monopoly news, so we have Monopoly Godzilla. They have partnered up with Toho International to bring two Godzilla branded board games, which is going to be Jenga Godzilla, of all things, and Monopoly Godzilla to retailers in 2020. Uh, from the press release, get ready to crush the competition in a monstrous twist of Monopoly. Players can buy, sell, and trade locations like Monster Island, Goro's Workshop, and Kitakami Lake, as well as conquer the board with facilities and bases. Or houses and hotels, one would assume. <laughs> Monopoly Godzilla also comes with custom sculpt tokens of Mothra Godzilla, King Ghidorah, and Mecha Godzilla. Oh yeah! So they're really like they're sticking close to the plot of the original movies, where Godzilla, yeah, King Ghidorah, and Mothra rampage around buying properties and founding bases. I remember that. Yeah, M- Monopoly's a very thematic game, James. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for the new Godzilla film where he yeah, yeah. walks up, builds a hotel. <laughs> and just hopes that he goes to jail. It's Godzilla. It's Godzilla meets Wall Street. It's the eighties film mashup you didn't know you needed. Scorsese's new giant epic lizard of Wall Street. I, I want to see that. <laughs> Indeed. Anyway, we'd just like to give a wee shout out to our executive producers, the Lucky Sparrow Gaming Cafe. They were on our last cast, and they are doing great things over at the Lucky Sparrow Games Cafe in Glasgow. You should go and check that out. And if you'd like to join them in becoming a patron, you can do so for only $1 a month. You get access to an extended version of this cast. And this is currently running at 55 minutes, so it's going to be really extended by the time I get around to an edit. And you'll also get access to our Idle Thoughts podcast for that, which is something we do every couple of months, uh, just chatting about the games we have played. Uh, James, where can people find you on the Internet of Things? They can find me in various places. Best place to find me specifically is on Twitter at Lagoon83. NeedyCat Games is pretty easy to find on pretty much any platform. It's at NeedyCat Games. Uh, If you want to look up some more stuff about Robot Fight Club, go to NeedyCatGames.com slash Robot Fight Club. You can also find it on Kickstarter by searching Robot Fight Club Kickstarter. I'm not going to read the URL out on on the air. That's going to take forever. But uh, I'm sure the show notes can happen. And when does that go live again, James? The 10th of March. Awesome. We will put links to all that in the show notes, folks, so you can go and check that out when it goes live. Thanks very much for listening. If you like what you've listened to, then the best way to help us out is to share the podcast and drop us a review and rating on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter, at The Giant Brain, Instagram, Giant Brain UK, Facebook, The Giant Brain, website, giantbrain.co.uk, and our email is giantbrainuk at gmail.com. 
That's all from me. Say goodbye, Ian. Goodbye, Ian. Say goodbye, Jamie. Thank you.